Day 2 of Totus Tuus' Novena to Mary Immaculate Star of Hope With quotes from Pope Benedict XVI's encyclical letter Spe Salvi on Christian Hope We have raised the question Can our encounter with God who in Christ has shown us his face and opened his heart be for us too not just informative but performative that is to say can it change our lives so that we know we are redeemed through the hope that it expresses before attempting to answer the question let us return once more to the early church it is not difficult to realize that the experience of the African slave girl, Bakita was also the experience of many in the period of nascent Christianity who were beaten and condemned to slavery. Christianity did not bring a message of social revolution like that of the ill-fated Spartacus, whose struggle led to so much bloodshed. Jesus was not Spartacus. He was not engaged in a fight for political liberation like Barabbas or Bar Kokhba. Jesus, who himself died on the cross, brought something totally different. An encounter with the Lord of all lords. An encounter with the living God. And thus, an encounter with a hope stronger than the sufferings of slavery. A hope which therefore transformed life and the world from within. What was new here can be seen with the utmost clarity in St. Paul's letter to Philemon. This is a very personal letter which Paul wrote from prison and entrusted to the runaway slave Onesimus for his master Philemon. Yes, Paul is sending the slave back to the master from whom he had fled, not ordering but asking. I appeal to you for my child whose father I have become in my imprisonment. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Perhaps this is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Those who, as far as their civil status is concerned, stand in relation to one another as masters and slaves, inasmuch as they are members of the one church, have become brothers and sisters. This is how Christians addressed one another. By virtue of their baptism, they had been reborn. They had been given to drink of the same spirit, and they received the body of the Lord together, alongside one another. Even if external structures remained unaltered, this changed society from within. When the letter to the Hebrews says that Christians here on earth do not have a permanent homeland, but seek one which lies in the future, this does not mean for one moment that they live only for the future. Present society is recognized by Christians as an exile. They belong to a new society which is the goal of their common pilgrimage and which is anticipated in the course of that pilgrimage. We must add a further point of view. 
The first letter to the Corinthians tells us that many of the early Christians belonged to the lower social strata, and precisely for this reason were open to the experience of new hope, as we saw in the example of Paquita. Yet from the beginning there were also conversions in aristocratic and cultured circles, since they too were living without hope and without God in the world. Myth had lost its credibility. The Roman state religion had become fossilized into simple ceremony, which was scrupulously carried out. But by then it was merely political religion. Philosophical rationalism had confined the gods within the realm of unreality. The divine was seen in various ways in cosmic forces, but a god to whom one could pray did not exist. Paul illustrates the essential problem of the religion at that time quite accurately when he contrasts life according to Christ with life under the dominion of the elemental spirits of the universe. In this regard, a text by St. Gregory Nazianzen is enlightening. He says that at the very moment when the Magi, guided by the star, adored Christ the new king, astrology came to an end because the stars were now moving in the orbit determined by Christ. This scene, in fact, overturns the worldview of that time, which in a different way has become fashionable once again today. It is not the elemental spirits of the universe, the laws of matter, which ultimately govern the world and mankind, but a personal God governs the stars, that is, the universe. It is not the laws of matter and of evolution that have the final say, but reason, will, love, a person. And if we know this person and he knows us, then truly the inexorable power of material elements no longer has the last word. We are not slaves of the universe and of its laws. We are free. In ancient times, honest inquiring minds were aware of this. Heaven is not empty. Life is not a simple product of laws and the randomness of matter, but within everything, and at the same time above everything, there is a personal will. There is a spirit who in Jesus has revealed himself as love. The sarcophagi of the early Christian era illustrate this concept visually, in the context of death, in the face of which the question concerning life's meaning becomes unavoidable. The figure of Christ is interpreted on ancient sarcophagi principally by two images, the philosopher and the shepherd. Philosophy at that time was not generally seen as a difficult academic discipline, as it is today. Rather, the philosopher was someone who knew how to teach the essential art, the art of being authentically human, the art of living and dying. To be sure, it had long since been realized that many of the people who went around pretending to be philosophers, teachers of life, were just charlatans who made money through their words, while having nothing to say about real life. All the more, then, 
the true philosopher who really did know how to point out the path of life, was highly sought after. Towards the end of the third century, on the sarcophagus of a child in Rome, we find for the first time, in the context of the resurrection of Lazarus, the figure of Christ as the true philosopher, holding the gospel in one hand and the philosopher's travelling staff in the other. With his staff, he conquers death. The gospel brings the truth that itinerant philosophers had searched for in vain. In this image, which then became a common feature of sarcophagus art for a long time, we see clearly what both educated and simple people found in Christ. He tells us who man truly is, and what a man must do in order to be truly human. He shows us the way, and this way is the truth. He himself is both the way and the truth, and therefore he is also the life which all of us are seeking. He also shows us the way beyond death, only someone able to do this as a true teacher of life. The same thing becomes visible in the image of the shepherd, as in the representation of the philosopher. So too, through the figure of the shepherd, the early church could identify with existing models of Roman art. There, the shepherd was generally an expression of the dream of a tranquil and simple life, for which the people, amid the confusion of the big cities, felt a certain longing. Now the image was read as part of a new scenario which gave it a deeper content. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, because you are with me. The true shepherd is one who knows even the path that passes through the valley of death. One who walks with me even on the path of final solitude, where no one can accompany me, guiding me through. He himself has walked this path. He has descended into the kingdom of death. He has conquered death. And he has returned to accompany us now and to give us the certainty that, together with him, we can find a way through. The realization that there is one who even in death accompanies me and with his rod and his staff comforts me so that I fear no evil. This was the new hope that arose over the life of believers. Faith gives life a new basis, a new foundation on which we can stand one which revitalizes the habitual foundation, the reliability of material income. A new freedom is created with regard to this habitual foundation of life, which only appears to be capable of providing support, although this is obviously not to deny its normal meaning. This new freedom, the awareness of the new substance which we have been given, is revealed not only in martyrdom, 
in which people resist the overbearing power of ideology and its political organs, and, by their death, renew the world. Above all, it is seen in the great acts of renunciation, from the monks of ancient times to St. Francis of Assisi and those of our contemporaries who enter modern religious institutes and movements and leave everything for the love of Christ, so as to bring to men and women the faith and love of Christ and to help those who are suffering in body and spirit. In their case, the new substance has proved to be a genuine substance. From the hope of these people who have been touched by Christ, hope has arisen for others who were living in darkness and without hope. In their case, it has been demonstrated that this new life truly possesses and is substance that calls forth life for others. For us who contemplate these figures, their way of acting and living is de facto a proof that the things to come, the promise of Christ, are not only a reality that we await, but a real presence. He is truly the philosopher and the shepherd who shows us what life is and where it is to be found. Let us pray. Holy Mary, Mother of God, our Mother, teach us to believe, to hope, to love with you. Show us the way to his kingdom. Star of the sea, shine upon us and guide us on our way. Prayer of Blessed John Paul II on the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary, 2003. Queen of Peace, pray for us. On the Feast of your Immaculate Conception, I return to venerate you, O Mary, at the foot of this statue that from Piazza di Spagna allows your motherly gaze to sweep across the ancient city of Rome, so dear to me. I have come here this evening to pay you the homage of my deep devotion. In this act, countless Romans join me on this square. Their love has followed me always, through all the years of my service to the See of Peter. I am here with them to set out on the journey towards the 150th anniversary of the dogma that we celebrate today with filial joy. Queen of Peace, pray for us. To you we turn our gaze with stronger trepidation. To you we hasten back with more insistent trust, in these times scarred by a multitude of doubts and fears for the present and future destiny of our planet. To you, the first fruits of humanity redeemed by Christ, set free at last from the slavery of evil and sin, we raise together our heartfelt trusting plea. Listen to the cry of pain of the war victims, 
of the victims of the many forms of violence that bathe the earth in blood. Dispel the shadows of sorrow and of loneliness, of hatred and of revenge. Open the minds and hearts of all to forgiveness. Queen of Peace, pray for us. Mother of mercy and of hope, obtain for the men and women of the third millennium the precious gift of peace. Peace in hearts and families, in communities and among peoples. Peace above all for those nations where people fight and die every day. Obtain that every human being of every race and culture may encounter and accept Jesus, who came down to earth in the mystery of Christmas to give his peace to us. O Mary, Queen of Peace, give us Christ, the world's true peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.